You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome, everybody, to our current episode of the Transformative Podcast produced by Rezet in Vienna. I'm Yanis Panayotidis, Scientific Director of Rezet. And today I have the pleasure to talk to Laurent Varlouzet, who's a professor of European history at the Sorbonne University in Paris. He's the author of a book published in French with the title Europe contre Europe, entre liberté, solidarité et puissance. So Europe versus Europe between liberty, solidarity and power. Power, which is coming out this year, 2022, with CNRS editions in uh, France. Laurent, welcome. I'm glad to have you here today. Thank you, Yanis, for the invitation. I'm very glad also uh, to be able to, to present the book. In this book, you suggest that there are three organizing principles to European unification, which you associate with certain organizational models. Perhaps you can walk us through these models a little bit, starting with the first one you mentioned, the title, Liberté or Liberty, Freedom. What's the story there? The book aims to make sense of the diversity of European economic cooperation from 1945 to 2021, to the COVID-19 crisis. And its subtitle, Liberté, Solidarité et Puissance, refers to the three forms of economic and social cooperation that have prevailed on the continent since 1945. So the liberal one, the market-oriented, the socially-oriented one, so hence solidarity, and Europe as a power, so a model based on a more assertive posture. And the first model, obviously, the liberal one is the most important because the dominant value at the core of the EU has been liberty or, in other words, liberal visions, uh, both in the economic and in the political realms. A free trade, in other words, has been fostered to promote peace. It lies at the core of the EU. At the core of the EU, you still have the single market, the single currency. But even before that, in 1957, when the EEC, the European Economic Community, the forerunner of the EU, was created, it was called the common market at first, as it was its main aim, to build a common market. And even before, uh, I argue in the book that European integration began in 1947-1948 with the Marshall Plan, when the Americans delivered aid to Europe, but they transferred those funds only if Europeans accepted to join the common organization, so this was the OEC, Organization for European Economic Cooperation, and to open up their market to US products, but also to their neighbors in Europe. So the aim was to avoid a return to the vicious circle of protectionism and nationalism of the 1930s. So you have this model of, let's say, a market-oriented Europe, a liberal Europe, both from the political and from the economic point of view, since 1947. But I also explore in the book the radical version of this liberal Europe, the neoliberal one, or the ultra-liberal one, that erupted mainly in the 1980s with Thatcher, First, in some aspects of competition policy, then in the European and Monetary Union, for example, in the Greek crisis case. You're saying Europe is very much a liberal project in this sense, but it's not only that. You also bring in this dimension of uh, solidarity, of uh, solidarity, which then refers to a more social dimension of Europe. How do these two models square with each other? How do they coexist, given that there's arguably some tension between liberalizing tendencies and social welfare? Solidarity has been a regular pattern of European integration since the Marshall Plan, but it's true in a more piecemeal fashion. We can single out two main areas of development. First, legislation, 
legislation have blossomed in some areas such as gender equality, working conditions, uh, the environment, since mainly the 1970s, 1980s. And second, redistribution. Redistribution was a less important tool in Europe than within national welfare states, obviously, but still it was implemented for some very specific issue. So first with the Marshall Plan, and then with regional, so Marshall Plan from 47 to 52 uh, during the reconstruction of Europe, then with regional cohesion policy with the various schemes designed to alleviate the plight of poorer regions, especially uh, in Central and Eastern Europe, and to some extent also with the program of assistance set up during the Eurozone crisis, even if in many cases, especially in the Greek case, it was probably too late. Even recently, in 2021, the common vaccination program was also a manifestation of solidarity because without it, the poorer countries, or even countries without national vaccines, so, such as mine, such as France, would probably have had less access to vaccines. So solidarity exists, but of course, Europe as a continent has remained centered around the market. Solidarity, socially oriented policy has always been flanking policy rather than the leading principle of organization of Europe. Even though in my book, I, I examine many very ambitious social projects that uh, have been discussed, uh, but that, that have failed, um, uh, such as uh, planning. There were many schemes uh, to design to set up some form of European planning in the 60s and 70s. The harmonization of company tax, also the democratization of companies. I have a whole chapter devoted to that. There was a project in 1980 to promote basically uh, the, the German system of co-determination at the European level. So it failed, but I made an intense lobbying battle between, between states, uh, but mainly between companies and trade unions. And I think those projects that failed were also interesting to study because they tell a lot about the balance of power and also about the debate of ideas and ideas that are still to some extent available today because uh, those kind of ideas re regularly pops up and come back again. But on the whole, the book uncovers the attempt at creating a social Europe, developed mainly in the 1970s, 1980s, by leaders such as Willy Brandt from Germany or Jacques Delors from France, but also the, the weakness of the social coalition with fundamental internal divisions, for example, between socialists, communists, social democrats, and between pro- and anti-Europeans, of course. It's very interesting to think about these different potentials also inherent in this in this history, right? So that basically you're, I guess, taking away also some of the teleological narrative that there isn't a lot of European integration history, that integration is happening in a certain way, and it kind of had to happen in a certain way, whereas you can show that there were actually different models on the table, which did or, well, in many cases, did not materialize for various reasons. Yeah, in particular, I discovered that after the crisis of 1973, many different projects were discussed, such as, as I said, planning, the democratization of company. But then after 1979, the second oil shock, many areas, many doors were closed because of the crisis and also because of the advent of Margaret Thatcher in the UK, which, of course, tell severely any attempt of implementing really ambitious social European policies. So Jacques Delors, in association with many countries, managed, and with the European Parliament, managed to get cohesion policy, managed to get some rules for uh, working conditions, also in the environmental realm. But it was, of course, more difficult once Thatcher was in the house than before, and also because of global shift in terms of ideology. Also, I, I was wondering in the book to what extent there was not other... Uh, many important milestones, such as, uh, for example, I, I, I mentioned also 1958. So in 1957, the Treaty of Rome was uh, signed. 
and created the European Economic Community. It is still important because uh, part of our current EU law derives from the Treaty of Rome of 1957, so it's still an important legal text. But what is often forgotten is that the Treaty of Rome was only one form of European organization, and at the same time, the British have proposed to set up a free trade area alongside the, the common market. The, uh, the French rejected the free trade area in 1958, and I think in my book I argue that it was also an important development because it really made the common market or the European communities the center of the organization of the Western European continent with a more elaborated vision of the market. So it was a market-oriented community, but with some kind of solidarity and some kind of power element, whereas the free trade area of the British was purely 100% free trade. I think also if you study the archives, this project of free trade area, of organizing Europe only as a big free trade area, has always remained in the mind of our British friends, but also in the mind of, of many other European leaders and, and people. And it's still one possible alternative to uh, the EU, even now. You just mentioned power in your explanations, which is the third dimension also of your book. So what about puissance? power. What exactly does it mean? It seems like a very ambivalent or ambiguous term, I guess, right? When Reset invited me to discuss the book, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't come to Vienna, but I remember that we had this discussion via Zoom about how to translate Europe puissance, so uh, the, the French motto of Europe, Europe as a power, Europa uh, as a mark in German. So basically, uh, what I mean by Europe as a power is the ability of Europeans to be more assertive in their policies to skirt pre-market rules by defending their own interests and in particular defending their companies. So this is what I call in the book neo-mercantilism, draws back from the mercantilism of the 17th and 18th century when European states aggressively promoted their economic interests by protectionism, by what we call now state aids or monopoly, monopolies given to certain companies. So of course, nowadays, since 1945, it's not possible to wage hopefully uh, such protectionist policies, such aggressive policies, hence the prefix neo, so neo-mercantilism. So, so Europe as a power means in the economic realm being neo-mercantilist, so uh, waging an industrial policy, actively supporting your companies, being protectionist less blatantly than in the 1930s or in the 1940s, of course, but um, still being willing to go beyond the free market rules. So this is what Europe has done in one single case for the common agricultural policy, which was heavily protectionist from its inception in 1962 to 1992, even now to some extent, but it has become uh, less and less protectionist since 1992. But apart from that, Europe has not existed as an assertive economic power because it was not the plan. As I explained, uh, Europe was liberal because at the core of Europe, you have this idea of free trade designed to promote peace. You have this idea of political liberties, promoting democracies, promoting uh, freedom, so, which means also the freedom of movement to some extent of, of goods, of people. Uh, the assertion of Europe as a power has not been in the European software right from the start. It, it has more uh, concerned nation state with national industrial policy, national military policy except, as I said, in agriculture. And in the book, I, I mentioned also some examples of uh, European uh, assertion. Uh, for example, Airbus. Airbus was an example of a successful European industrial policy. But I also explained why Airbus 
the Airbus example could not be reproduced in other sectors because basically there are plenty of industrial problems and also plenty of political problems because it triggered such kind of policies of massive state aids, triggered also reaction. There have been some conflict with the US on, on Airbus, of course. That's why some countries, such as Germany, are very wary against this kind of assertion of Europe because they fear a rise in protectionist tension. But nowadays, we have a, a new kind of assertion of Europe. So probably with Ukraine, we can discuss it, but also with environmental policy. For example, the carbon border adjustment mechanism is a kind of neo-protectionist tools which associate uh, the logic of the assertiveness of Europe, but also... Um, a more green version of Europe, which conflate with uh, the, the category of uh, solidarity. You mentioned the military kind of in passing, and obviously this is something that while right now as we're recording this war is raging in Ukraine, we're wondering about Europe as a foreign policy actor. I mean, this is not a new question, obviously, but it's a question that keeps coming back and that is very much on the table now. Europe as a foreign policy actor and as a military power. Could the current war in Ukraine be the breakthrough, the final breakthrough of Europe as a unified foreign policy or even a military actor? What I can say as an historian is that Europe was, in terms of external relations, in terms of foreign relations, a liberal economic power. So it has become a more assertive economic power, especially since, since 2016, to respond to the, the challenge of protectionism waged by Trump. Even in the past, Europe has reacted with a sense of unity against some protectionist tension triggered by US. For example, in, in 1982, Reagan imposed sanctions on some companies which have helped to build the Soviet pipeline. And uh, this elicited a unanimous EEC reaction, which forced Reagan to back down. So it's not something really new, but really since 2016, with Brexit, with Trump, with a more also aggressive Russia and China, I mean, from the economic point of view, uh, talking about China, Europe has embarked on a slightly more assertive external economic policy with, for example, a decision to monitor foreign direct investment and commission's project to control the GAFAMs or even to support targeted industrial policy in chips, for example. But it's still difficult, as I explain in the book, a drawing on the Airbus example. And now, while in Ukraine, the whole debate revolves around the possibility of a genuine military Europe emerging. For this, I think, first, there was one issue about uh, which kind of, of military Europe uh, should emerge. Would it be a genuine European military power or an Atlantist military power? Because we see that most of the military effort of Europe uh, still is still organized through NATO, which is not a problem but it's always been the case since the start of European integration. Even the European Defence Community, the project of 1952, which is often mentioned today in the, the context of the Ukraine war, was not meant to construct an independent European defence, but a European pillar within NATO. This is one issue. Uh, do we want to build a genuinely independent European military power of our uh, NATO pillar? The second issue is, do we want to be a military power? And many countries uh, do not want, such as probably uh, yours, uh, Janice, I mean, uh, the country of, of Reset, neutral countries such as Austria. I can imagine that they are quite reluctant to the mere principle of having uh, an assertive foreign policy for understandable reasons. Third, you need, of course, to have a common diplomacy before being a military power. So uh, 
Before the war in Ukraine, there were many divisions about Russia, for example. Everybody knows that. And four, you need to build an industrial policy in the military sector. And here it's difficult because basically you have to build an efficient European military industry. You have basically to make difficult choices. Some countries would have to abandon part of their military industry to concentrate on what they do the best. But nobody wants to give up on such a strategic industry. So in other words... I know that uh, it was the first time, I think it was on the 28th or 27th of February, it was the first time that the EU both decided to buy weapons and, and to send them to a country uh, at war. But then you have all those issues in terms of willingness, in terms of diplomatic objectives, in terms of military industry to solve. Right. Now, that's, the military is, of course, one big issue, one big challenge right now. The other big challenge that kind of has taken the back seat over these past years, it seems, but which is going to be increasingly pressing is, of course, the environment, climate change. And you mentioned this green dimension of Europe. Is there something like an environmental Europe, a green Europe in the making? Can that even be a driver of further European integration, perhaps? It was, at least in the past, in the book, I underlined that it was quite surprising that the European communities took the lead in environmental policy, because at the start, it was the UN and in Europe, the Council of Europe that dealt with environmental issues. But at some point, environmental activists, pro-environmental groups, became more and more interested in the European communities and then in the EU for one simple reason. It's federal law, which is a stumbling block of European integration, because once an environmental standard is agreed in Brussels, it is then enforced, more or less. I know that there was the Dieselgate scandal, for example, but um, it made a big difference with the UN and with the Council of Europe. And that's why the current challenge against federal law by Poland and Hungary is so deleterious, even if it has been a, a little bit overshadowed by the conflict in Ukraine. That's why the EU, to some extent, is, of course, quite imperfect from the environmental point of view. But it is still, at least in some countries such as mine, probably more influential or it has set higher standard than a nation state would have set if they have been led by themselves. And this is certainly the case for France. So the green Europe has existed. It is still imperfect. And it could play a role in the future to promote a new kind of solidarity Europe and also to promote a new kind of Europe as a green power. It could be a nice way to merge the assertiveness of Europe uh, without being actually too protectionist or too aggressive. Because, of course, if you are assertive, there's always a risk of ending up being too uh, nationalistic. So, yeah, they, I think I conclude the book more or less on, on this dimension, which I think, you're right, will play a growing role in the future. Laurent, thank you very much for being with us today. It was a fascinating talk and it uh, sounds like a fascinating book. Thanks, everybody, for listening and see you next time. You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by Red Set in Vienna. Music